Philemon, verse 8 is where we're starting today. And, um, and we're continuing our series. We're family now? Question mark, exclamation point. And we want to unpack this new reality that, uh, that we are really family in the body of Christ. And so, if you're, if, again, if you'll walk with me to uh, Philemon cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 8 through 16, we'll read through that. And it says, For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ, to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I want to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I don't want you to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated uh, separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a Dearly loved brother, he's especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray that you will be glorified and magnified, that you'll be lifted high as the proclamation of your word goes forth, that it will draw us and compel us to obedience to transform lives that we would experience the renewing of our minds. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll speak through me and let none of me be seen but all of you. And as I decrease, your spirit will increase in me. Let your will be done. I'm so thankful for how your word is going to change us and draw us to deeper fellowship with one another and with you. In Jesus' name, amen. The year is 2013. I was officially experiencing my first semester, full semester, as a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And you know the stereotypes that come with fraternities, the partying, the drinking, the women, all of those things. And so as a Christian man, I was actively trying to uh, uh, not only fight those temptations, but also uh, uh, use my Christian uh, uh, lifestyle and my relationship to God to be an influence to my fraternity brothers. And so I was actively trying to live out this lifestyle, this Christian lifestyle in the midst of Uh, the stereotypes and some being true associated with fraternities. And there was always this uh, other fraternity that in in a lot of ways kind of functioned as a rival. They they wanted to outdo us in community service. They wanted to outdo us in parties. They wanted to outdo us in step shows. And that was Omega Psi Fraternity Fraternity Incorporated. And so the, the, the Omegas and the Alphas on my campus, even though individually some of them might be friends, collectively seem to be rivals. Seem to always be at odds. And there was one particular guy by the name of uh, a DMACS, 
is what we call him. Now, uh, his name is Donald McNeil, and, and he was uh, uh, the antithesis of me. I'm, a, I'm an alpha living for Jesus. He's a Q doing his thing, wilding out. In fact, when I would hold events for our fraternities, like relationship forums, uh, it was the gospel packaged in relationship forms and these different things. What he would do is, is he would he would actually pass out our flyers to mock the things that we were doing. There was, in in some sense, this rivalry between us. Well, one day, that particular semester, later in the semester, uh, my friends started to notice uh, that this guy who's very much living the stereotypical lifestyle of a fraternity, and then you add the stereotypes that come with Omega Sci-Fi, he's living out all of those things. And then one day, some friends of mine noticed that his Instagram page drastically changed. And he started posting about Jesus and God. And, 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 you know, when people do that on social media, especially in college, that doesn't necessarily mean they live for Jesus. A lot of times that's just, you know, it's cultural for us. But I reached out to him. And I said, hey, man, I couldn't help but notice, me and a, another alpha brother who's also a Christian, hey, man, I couldn't help but notice that there's some things in your life seem to be different. And I, I would love to take an opportunity to treat you to lunch and hear what's going on in your life. And so we go to lunch, and sure enough, DMAC experienced a radical transformation by God. And in an instant, this man who could have very well been considered to be my rival, now my brother. And, and we became brothers in, in such a deeper sense that the love that we shared, the, the mutual respect and, and common ground that we had with one another actually transcended any rivalry between our fraternities and any love that's supposed to be related in fraternities exceeded that and our love for each other as Christian brothers. What I'm saying is, is that, that my love for DMAC does not compare to my, uh, uh, to my love for my brothers in the fraternity. My, my love for DMAC exceeds that now because he is a fellow brother in the faith. That bond was so. In fact, if you, if you go back to the pictures of my wedding, that there were no other alphas in my wedding other than Martinez, who was a Christian brother, and DMAC, who is a Christian brother. That it spilled over into my life that my accountability partner became DMAC. That, that when, I, when, when, when rebuke needed to happen, it happened in the context of that relationship. Things changed drastically. And though we didn't pledge together, though we didn't cross together, though we weren't in the same fraternity, our bond was still as great, if not more. And here's the reality that, that we're working in, that, that because we were brothers in the faith, and here's our, our big idea for today, love drives us to a familiar commitment with people from different social standings. This is, this is what the gospel does. This is what being brought into the faith does. This is what love does. This love that me and DMAC had for one another, it drove us into a familiar commitment that even though we were from different social standings in the fraternal spectrum, we were brought into a familiar commitment. 
And that's what we're seeing happening and transpiring and being challenged to Philemon. Just to give us some background, if you missed last week, uh, we're walking through the book of Philemon, and Philemon is a letter that Paul writes to a guy named Philemon. And Philemon is a a leader in the church. In fact, he's a a well-off, affluent leader in the church because his home and resources are large enough to actually host the house church at his house. And he has a slave by the name Onesimus, and scholars believe that this slave ran away, somehow got connected to Paul, and now Paul is writing a letter for Philemon to receive Onesimus back. And so Paul spends the first uh, 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 several verses of the letter kind of setting Philemon up for this ask that he's about to make. Hadn't made the ask yet, but he setting him up for it. He's reminding him of his character and his faith and who he is and his love for the other brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. And now he's about to point to the fact that that love needs to spill over into Onesimus. We'll deal deal with it some more later. And so here it is. Verse 8, Paul says, we want to unpack this idea. He says, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. Let's pause there. Pause there and let's talk about it. Paul says in in all of his apostolic authority, right? Let's, Let's rehearse who Paul is for just a second. Paul is what I would call the OG in the faith. Paul is, Paul is a guy who, who literally, uh, when he's annoyed by a spirit, a demon, he casts that demon out. Remember the slave girl in Acts chapter 16 was following Paul around, saying that he is a servant of the Most High God. The slave girl was being used by her masters uh, for her ability to tell the future, and she's following Paul around. And the scripture says that, that Paul was annoyed, and he cast the spirit out and then left her. Paul is the guy that that is planting multi-ethnic churches across the province of Asia in Rome. Paul is fluent in 14 different languages. Paul is the Pharisee of Pharisees being well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is an OG, so much so that dude could survive shipwrecks and be bitten by serpents and people wait for him to die and he just shakes the serpent off into the fire. Paul is the guy who literally watched Jesus come to him and call him out of darkness into the marvelous light to to do a work that nobody else was doing. To bring people outside of the, the Jewish ethnicity into the faith of Jesus Christ. And here it is, Paul says, that I rest in my apostolic authority that I could command you to do what is right, but I'm not going to do that. I can tell you to do what's right. But I'm not going to exercise my apostolic authority. Instead, I'm going to appeal to you differently. I'm going to come at you differently. I'm going to come at you as as a prisoner, an elderly man, and I want you to do what I'm asking you, what I'm about to ask you, not because of who I am, per se, in the office that I hold in the church. I want you to do it based on love. I want love to be the the driving force for your decision. See, love is is the basis of the Christian faith, is it not? When when the lawyer comes and asks Jesus 
uh, what is the greatest commandment, his response is not anything that's in the Ten Commandments. He responds with, Mark 12, 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he responds that there is one like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the foundation of the Christian faith that even the Apostle John, uh, uh, the Apostle John who writes uh, 1 John and the Gospel of John, he says, dear children, uh, uh, love. In fact, when Jesus gives them a new commandment, it still encompasses the word love, that he says, I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Now Jesus not only tells you to love, but he gives you the, the example of love, which is in his own life, his own character, and his own example. Even what God chose to do for us on the cross, the Bible says in Romans that God demonstrated his love that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. He says that the evil reason for God sending his only begotten son is because he so loved the world. I'm preaching this morning. He loved the world. Love is the driving force for Jesus dying on the cross for our sin. Love is the driving force for, for Christians interacting with each other. And love ought to be the reason that Philemon does what Paul is asking him. And our point right here we're to take a, a, a principle from this, this passage. Love drive, nope, excuse me. Love is the foundation for ethical decisions. I like really messed up that big moment. I built it up and then said the wrong thing. Love is the foundation for ethical decisions. The decisions that we make as Christians should be driven by love. Let, let's take some time to parse that out. Especially in the climate that we are right now, when we, we talk about whether we should wear masks or not wear masks. And there are many people who are, are frustrated and angry. Uh, some even believe that their liberties are being taken because they are, are being mandated to wear masks. And I would ask the question, is that decision being made out of love or a petition for freedom? Is that decision being made out of love or is it being made out of a rejection of authority? What is the driving force of people not wanting to wear masks? And I would, I would be inclined to argue that, that some of the reasons that I've heard, none of it had anything to do with loving your neighbor. I, I, I believe that love would compel us to put our mask on out of love for our neighbor. That even though the, the mask is uncomfortable and even though the, the, the mask is, is hard to pray in and it's hard to talk in and people can't hear you as well, I, I think love for another person should compel us to be uncomfortable for a little while. But what about, what about our protesting of injustice? I would ask the same question, is, is love the driving force for that decision? Is it the foundation on why you champion black lives? Or is it that you're just angry? Is the foundation of, of, of your protests and your petitions and your, your, your words and your Facebook paragraphs, are, are those driven from a place of anger or is it love? Is it because you love the oppressed? 
or that you're angry with the oppressor. And I would say as a Christian, the thing that should be driving you is your love for people who are disenfranchised, your love for people who are marginalized should be the driving force. Should be the foundation for your ethical decisions. And hear me, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be angry about injustice. I'm saying you need to be aware of what the foundation of that is. That it ought to be rooted in love. Found, founded on love and not founded on anger. Not even founded on political status. Or to be perceived a certain way by a particular group. Everything we do in our life as Christians, love should be the root cause. Why did you help that person? Why did you give that person money when, when it was your last? It should be because of love, not because you were expecting to scratch it back later. Why did you get up and come to church this morning? It, it should be your love for God and your love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Love ought to be the driving factor for our decisions. It should be the foundation for ethical decisions. And so Paul encourages Philemon to, to respond to his quest on the request on the basis of love. And then he throws this curveball. Because by the way, Paul hasn't officially made his ask yet. And, and now, in verse 10, is the first time that Philemon, I mean, Paul is going to actually mention Onesimus' name. Now, Philemon may have a gist of what's going on, but this is the first time Paul mentions it in the letter. Look at it with me, verse 10. He says, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deeds might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. Let's pause here. Put a pen there. And so Paul says, I'm appealing to you on behalf of my son, Onesimus. Now, you might miss this. But I want you to see the family language that Paul is using. He's very intentional about this. He doesn't say, you're a slave, Onesimus. He doesn't say, you're a runaway, Onesimus. He says, my son. And I became his father. What is Paul explaining here? What he's saying is, is that, that when I came in contact with Onesimus, he was not a follower of Jesus. He was not a brother in the faith. But you know if anybody around Apostle Paul, again, he's an OG. I, I can't imagine Paul coming in contact with people and out of his love and commitment to the gospel, not sharing the gospel with them. And I just, I just wish I could just go back in time and watch his intentionality. I bet it'll put all of us to shame. And I'm sure Paul was loving and kind and straightforward with Onesimus, so much so that when Onesimus was in the space of Paul, he came to salvation. Paul is saying, I've led him to Christ with my very own mouth. He's now my son in the faith, and I'm his father. 
And this has to be a, a, a kind of shocking for Philemon when he's reading this letter and he gets to this point because because Paul is saying is he, he's saved now. He's a Christian now. He's a fellow brother now. And then Paul says, and I like this, uh, he says, once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. What we don't know is, is Paul, Paul got bars. For real, this is straight, coordinated Greek lyricism. See, Paul is doing a wordplay with the name Onesimus and useful and useless. And so, so the name Onesimus around about means to be useful. It's a common slave name. And there's this expectation for the slave to live up to his, his role and his responsibility to be useful. And so luckily for us in the English, we kind of catch the wordplay a little bit. And so his name being useful, he wasn't useful for you. He was useless, but now he is useful. Bars. And here's, here, here's the point, though. Here's what I want you to catch. He doesn't become useful until he's a Christian. Paul says at one point in time, simply as a slave, he wasn't useful for you. He was useless. But now, not because I'm sending him back, not because he's hung around me for a little while, but now because he's a brother in the faith, he is now useful. Here's, here, here's my next point. Value is tethered to relational status to God, not social status in the world. Value is ultimately connected to your relational status with God. It does not matter what your social status is in the world. When we look at Philemon, I mean, we look at Onesimus, his social status is of lower class. He's a slave. In fact, the way uh, indigenous servitude worked in, in, in the Greco-Roman area, and it, it was actually more beneficial for some slaves to remain a slave because if they became free, they would not have the resources to survive on their own. Uh, uh, Onesimus does not own himself. His social class, his social standing is lower than the rest. But because he, and let me back up, every, every slave, whether it is chattel slavery, American slavery, or indentured servitude, ultimately is valued because of their connection to God. Why? Because, because in the scriptures, we know that every human being was created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. So every human has value because they were created in God's image. And so he had value already. But this value is now multiplied because he's not just created in the image of God. Now he's been conformed to the image of Christ. His connection with Jesus makes him more valuable. And I think that's, that's a, a word for us today to understand. I'll give you, give you an illustration of my own life. My dad is a phenomenal cook. Anybody here, Aaron's amen to me in the back, anybody who's had my dad's cooking will know that, as the old black folks used to say, he put his foot in it. Maybe even left a toenail. Culturally, that might not translate. I don't know. But it's good, bottom line, right? I, I mean, the, the only meal that my dad's ever cooked that I've not enjoyed are just items that I generally don't like. And it's almost like the dude cannot cook nothing that's not good. And, 
learning from him how to cook is, is, is terrible because he's, you're like, all right, what I need to cook this and how much in it? He just, he just, you know, you just look at it, you know when it's ready. Like, what? I need, I need measurements, sir. I don't know if you knew. I'm a millennial. I need measurements. Like that old school cooking y'all just did, you just poured and listened to the spirit of your ancestors. I don't really know how to do that. But he's a great cook. And he has this weird rule that if you come eat at his house, you cannot take a to-go plate. So if you're going to come, you have to enjoy the fellowship, enjoy the fun, enjoy the camaraderie, and, and you can either eat there or don't eat at all. That's your option. But it was actually pretty interesting to me when I became an adult and I stopped living at the house, I would come home and there was no problem with me taking a to-go plate. I would, you know, pack food up, and sometimes I wouldn't even leave very much for them if there was leftover. Sometimes my dad would just say, take the whole thing. Even now, when I'm married, my dad would call me and say, hey, I got some etouffee over here. With no expectation for me to eat fair, knowing that I'm going to get one of my mom's Tupperware containers, never bring it back, and take it with me. Why is it that, that I can enjoy this benefit and no one else can? Because my relational status to my dad. I'm his son. And being his son, I get benefit that nobody else gets. I get the benefit of walking to the special refrigerator past his room in his closet, getting drinks without asking. I get the benefit of knowing the passcode. That was a little rough to get. But getting the passcode to the house when they're not there. Why? Because I'm his son. See, value is, is not attached to social standing. Not in the kingdom of God. It's attached to relational status. Relational standing. And so if you, if you really want to experience all the value and the worth that you can have as an individual, you need to be tethered to Jesus Christ. And so any person who is tethered to God, whether being created in the Imago Dei or tethered to, to the, the saving work of Jesus Christ, that person has value. And we need to live as such. That is why Paul can, can move to this next statement saying that, hey, look, here's, here's what I'm expecting of you, that you no longer, I'm not going to go there yet. Let me wait. Let me get ahead of myself. Onesimus has value. But then Paul says, uh, uh, verse 14, affirming what he said earlier, that I, I don't want you to do anything with it. I want you to do it without, without your consent. Onesimus is, is valuable to me. He's helpful to me. And I would love to keep him in this predicament that I in, I'm in. Let's, let's go to uh, 13. He says, I want to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's very, he's very uh, um, uh, uh, clever in, in how he says things to really build Philemon up. This is the, I believe, third or fifth time, the third time in five verses that Paul has mentioned his imprisonment. And that's intentional. Because what Paul is saying is, is that as a brother in the faith, you are responsible for serving me and bearing my burdens with me according to the scriptures when I'm in hardship. 
you could not be here to do that for me, which is understandable, but Onesimus could. But he also wants to remind, he, he, he's, he's low-key saying that the sacrifice that I'm making for the gospel in comparison to you losing a slave is very minute. Paul is saying, consider the sacrifice of your brother in the faith. But I'm not going to ask you to do that without your consent. I don't want you to feel obligated to do anything like that. And no, that's ultimately not Paul's request. His request is not for him to free Onesimus so that he can come back and serve Paul. But then Paul points out in verse 14, I'm sorry, 15, perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently. Paul, Paul is alluding to, and he does this very well, he's alluding to the sovereignty and providence of God. What Paul is saying is, is that I think it's safe for us to speculate that God had a hand on this in the first place. That whether, whether you like to believe that God ordained it and set it in motion, or you like to believe that he permitted it, either way God has his hand in the actions that took place. That the reason why that Onesimus was separated from you in the first place is so that he could find the Lord Jesus Christ, receive him as his Savior, be moved out of darkness into the marvelous light, though he was dead in his trespasses, now is made alive in Christ Jesus so that he can come back permanently to you, not as a slave, but as a brother. Paul is saying that this is the will of God. This is his plan. This is what he permitted. This is what he saw as he's playing chess with the world so that Onesimus could not be your slave anymore, but be your brother. And I just want to encourage some people in today that if you're feeling like life is all out of control, let me remind you that God is playing chess in your life, not checkers. That God is intentionally moving pieces in your life so that you can come into a deeper, more profound, greater understanding of who he is and what that means for your life. God is playing chess in your life. And sometimes, sometimes the, the moves in chess are, are different. You don't understand it. You don't know where they're going. You don't understand the strategy behind it. But God is intentional about the things that he's doing. Even in your life, he's intentional about it. And even I want you to think about, because I, I would say that, that it was not God's perfect will for George Floyd to be killed. But look how God used it. God has this uncanny way of inserting a but God in horrible experiences. Where, where when George Floyd was killed, they didn't just protest all over the country. The suffering of a people group became known across the entire world, affirmed across the entire world of the dignity of that people group. Who do you think permitted these things to be in motion? Who do you think moved in the hearts of people to respond the way they did? God has an uncanny way of inserting a but God in experiences, especially when they're difficult. You know, just like uh, uh, Joseph in the Bible, who was a uh, 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 sold into slavery by his own brothers because of their jealousy of him. And after being sold into slavery, Joseph found favor as a slave. Then that slave wife, uh, doing some crazy stuff, got him thrown in jail, lying on Joseph and stuff. And so Joseph ends up in prison 
Man, Joseph my hero, though. He's my purity hero. This man has a woman of, of, of status coming on to him to sleep with him, and he gives her the Heisman. Like, that ought to be every man's hero. He's like, look, he, he, he was so, uh, 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 so consistent and faithful to God's expectations for him that he ran out of that thing naked. He's like, whatever I got to do to get away from you, I will do it. Ultimately, he goes to prison because she lied. And even in prison, he finds favor. Then he moves up being the second in command of the, one of the most powerful nations in the world, Egypt at the time. And here's what he says to his brother. You meant this for my harm, but God meant it for good. God is working in every circumstance and scenario. And he is elevating us. He is working on us and he is adding value to us regardless of our social standings in the world. He gives us value because of our relational status to him. That Paul would encourage Philemon and point out that God's uh, uh, divine providence is so that Philemon, I mean, Onesimus would come back no longer as a slave, but much more as a brother. Because as a brother, you got to do more than you ever could imagine. As a brother, you have a responsibility and an expectation to him. As a, as a brother, you cannot look a man in the eye and enslave him and call him your brother at the same time. The, the dynamic between Philemon and Onesimus has significantly changed because Onesimus is now a follower of Jesus. His relational status is tethered to God. And so, notice I haven't talked much about application. Alicia, you can come. I haven't talked much about application yet. What are the things that we should be doing? I've, I've talked more, uh, if you will, philosophically, because I, I need to help us shape our framework first. I need to help us shape our mind and our thinking. So a man thinks, so he is. And so our thinking about race relations, our thinking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a Christian across the ethnic aisle, needs to be shaped first so that we can know then how to apply it. So next week we'll talk more about application, more about what, we, what we should be doing. But the beauty of, of two individuals who exist on, on different social standings against across the ethnic aisle or the political aisle or the racial aisle are brought in unity with one another because of Jesus Christ. And love empowers them to do that. That when I look back in my relationship with DMAC and how God used this newfound unity, one of the, the, one of the things that I'm most proud of from from uh, school of uh, my time in college is what me and DMAC was able to do. Both of us, two black young men living and being a part of a fraternity, we are, we decided to do a forum. I, that was kind of like my specialty in college. And we did this forum called Alpha and Omega Presents I'm Fratting, I'm Saved. 
Well, you see the play on words. You get, okay, I was trying to see. And so we do this thing called Alpha and Omega, I'm afraid and I'm saved. And both of us kind of do this, this shared TED talk, if you will, about being in a fraternity, living for Jesus. And at the end of this experience, after much prayer and, 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 and much planning, and uh, we probably had somewhere, somewhere between 60 to 100 people in the room, but I do remember this detail, that at the end of it, we gave an, an invitation for people to receive Jesus. And 11 people came that day to receive Christ. This is a byproduct of God taking two people completely opposite from each other and bringing them into relationship with one another. And achieve great things through that. And God wants to do the exact same thing through us. To take people who would not normally agree with each other, who would not normally experience or be in the same social standing, whether whether you, you are economically privileged or have affluent in some way, or whether you're, you're not, whether you're in, impoverished or living in poverty or you're in upper middle class, whatever the case may be, whether you're black or white or Republican or, or, or Democrat, uh, whatever the case, God wants to take those uh, opposing positions and bring them into unity together under the banner of Jesus Christ. To say that my Jesusness uh, transcends my blackness, that my Jesusness uh, uh, transcends my whiteness, my Jesusness transcends my gender. In fact, Paul says it say, uh, 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 in the cousin letter of Philemon Col Colossians, where he says there's neither a, a, a Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Scythian, barbarian. It doesn't matter what the social standing or economical standing or political standing a person has. They are one in Christ. As the, the, the theologians say, we're all equal at the foot of Jesus. We all have value. We all have dignity. We all have worth because Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago, hung on a cross. He hung, him head, he hung his head. They stretched him wide and for me he died. Because of that, that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who chooses to, to believe on Jesus Christ becomes children of God, sharing the same social standing. Jesus makes that possible. And we can put our hope and our trust and our faith in him today. So I give an appeal. If you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to stop by our connect table. That, that if you need this Jesus that, that could, could bring peace and worth and value to your life, if you need this Jesus that can save you from your sins, come have a conversation with us. My sister Erin is at the connect table. would be more than happy to have a conversation with you if you feel comfortable to talk with me, feel free to come have a conversation with me. We would love to talk you through what it means to surrender all of your life to Jesus and submit it to Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you are glorified in every way. That you call us to unity. You call us to be family now. And help us to live in light of that. If there's someone today who had made Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, God, 
I pray that they'll do that in Jesus' name.